Right, page 287 in your Pew Bibles, which are in front of you, or on your app, if you're looking at it on the app, and it's 1 Samuel chapter 15. And we're beginning at verse 34 and going to 16, verse 13. So that's 287, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gilbeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And then David went to Ramah. No, he didn't. Samuel went to Ramah, sorry. Okay. So, today, as you can see, we are looking at the anointing of David as king. David was the second king of Israel. Prior to that, we had Saul. And prior to that, Israel's king was God. But they weren't very happy about that. After a while, they got a bit naggy because they wanted to be like everybody else in the area and they wanted a king. So they talked to God and God agreed and Saul was then appointed king. But unfortunately, Saul disobeyed God. He sacrificed when it was meant to be Samuel's job and he got impatient. So God then, as it says in 1 Samuel 13 verse 14, he disinherited Saul and then a new king was to be found. And at the verse after hours this morning, the spirit was removed from Saul. And so now we move on 
to the start of our reading today. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go and see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. So we have a breakup of the relationship between Saul and Samuel. And the Lord regretted that he had ever made Saul king over Israel. That's worse than the parent word of disappointed, isn't it, I think? To be told your parents are disappointed in a grade you get in exams, it's exam weeks at the moment, is, but to say they regretted that they ever sent you to that school is a much harder thing. That's very tough. But it gets worse. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him? So we've now got rejection as well as regret. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So oil was way, the way the Middle East anointed kings. That was normal practice. So Samuel has been told to set off with his oil ready to do that. Jesse, we know, is the father of David. He's also the son of Judah and Tamar and the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. So he's got a very illustrious lineage. And then the last line, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. ESV says, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. God this time is taking a hand in the choosing of the king. Some commentators say that Saul was the people's choice. That's debatable. But this time God is quite clearly acting and is anointing the king of his choice. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. So as often happens with prophets, isn't it? He was afraid of what he was asked to do by God. Moses, we have arguing with God about how he can't go. And in the end, he gets Aaron to go with him. Jonah was so scared, he ran away and ended up in the mouth of a whale. How often, I wonder, do we run away when God asks us to do something? Are we afraid of what he asks us to do? I think it's easy to do, but we don't need to do that because the Lord will show you what you need to do and we'll be there with you. Because as he says to Samuel, the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So God is showing him what he needs to do and being there. Now, some people are slightly concerned about what God tells Samuel to do because they think that he's telling Samuel to lie because he's telling him to to sacrifice when he's going to anoint a king but Samuel does go and perform a sacrifice so he's not being told to lie he's more not telling all the truths that he needs to and it did remind me of Paul when Paul says you know I have in 1 Corinthians I've become a Jew to win the Jews to those under the law one like under the law etc We make ourselves as we need to be, one side of our personality, if you like, or one thing we're doing to make sure we can do what God asks us to do. So Samuel then did what the Lord said, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. The picture there is for um, Andrew. The elders were afraid, and I wondered why to start with. Why were they afraid? Did Samuel look scary? Was the fact that he was a prophet scary because of the role he had and the fact that they knew he spoke for God? I wondered, though, whether it was from the verse before our reading this morning, which is 1 Samuel 15, verse 33. Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. 
I think that's enough to make anybody afraid if they'd heard that he'd done that. And then Samuel tells them, consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So consecration uh, was a Jewish ritual, and it would involve them washing themselves and their clothing so that they are holy to participate at the sacrifice. And this is pre the construction of the temple. So everywhere there were little local shrines and sanctuaries where they carried out these local sacrifices. So the sacrifice happens, and then there's a period of time while the meat that's been sacrificed, the permitted meat, is prepared and cooked for the feast afterwards. And at this point, Samuel then sees all the sons. And he starts with Eliab, who is tall and strong, which could mean that he looked quite like Saul. And so Samuel was possibly about to make the same mistake that he made before. And then all the sons come past. And God doesn't choose any of them. And the question I thought was why? Why did he not choose any of the others? If you go on two slides, Tris, please. And the reason is in verse 7. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I remember watching a programme with Edwina Curry a while ago, on television quite a long time ago, and she said that fat people sit on the sofa eating crisps and watching the television. Well, I don't like crisps. I very rarely sit on the sofa and watch television. However, this... Oh, if we go on to the next slide, Tris. If you go on to the next slide, that is Val almost at the top of Helvellyn. Now, I don't have a picture of me, but I took that. So last summer, I was there climbing Helvellyn. I don't get a lot of time to sit on the sofa, but how many people would look at me and go, oh, look at her, she'll be sitting on the sofa eating crisps and watching telly all day, if only. But the, world, the quote from Blakey, now, I didn't have, don't have one on, from Spurgeon this week, normally I have one from Spurgeon, but Reverend William Garden Blakey is of same time, as Spurgeon, and he said, the world is full of idolatries, but I question if an idolatry has been more extensively practiced than the idolatry of outward appearance. I think that's even more true now. The persona we present to the world, particularly those who use social media, it's not us, and people look at that persona, the person we want to present the world that we are. But God isn't interested in that. That isn't what God looks at. And I think we need to be careful both of the persona we present, but the, how we look at other people. Because the Lord does not look at the things that we look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the heart there, I went and looked that up because it's not the thing beating. It's, I, I, thought I wrote down the definition for you. It's on the next slide. Inward moral and spiritual life, including the emotions, will and reason. So it's our emotions, our will, and our reason. Jesus told off the Pharisees because they cleaned the outside of the cup and made it beautiful and pristine and presented that persona to the world, but the inside was filthy, dirty, and festering. Is that true of us, I wonder? Are we presenting a view to the world that is beautiful and clean, and inside we are dirty and festering? So Samuel's now in a bit of a pickle, to be honest. He's, he's done what God told him. He's seen all the sons and God has rejected all of them. So I think sometimes we can get worried that when we do something that God's asked us to do and it doesn't go the way we think it will go because God doesn't see the world as we see. 
But Samuel has wisdom and he asks Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down and he arrives. He hasn't got a name here, notice. He's not naming him. He's called him the youngest. He wasn't worthy to be invited to the feast with a, with a prophet, which was an important thing. And Jesse doesn't volunteer to send for him. He asks him to be sent for. Samuel has to ask. So Jesse did send for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with fine health and a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. There, This is the one. And he's still not named here. Poor David, he hasn't got a name yet. Josepha said he was about nine. Many commentators say he's about 15 to 16. So he's a young teenager. He's considered to be young and insignificant. And yet you see what he becomes. He becomes the king of Israel. There are statues of him still thousands of years later. He is mentioned in 66 chapters of the Old Testament. And he has 59 mentions in the New Testament. And Jesus is not described as the son of Moses or the son of Abraham. He's described as the son of David. God isn't interested in status or power or the outward trappings of life. God isn't interested in your status. He's interested in your heart, your emotions, your will and your reason. And that's still the same about the disciples, isn't it? They were insignificant. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. And yet they went on to change the world. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. I don't think the brothers understood what was happening. When we get to the story of Goliath, there's no mention of them ribbing David that he's going to be the king and all that kind of stuff. And knowing brothers, I think they would have done that if he knew what was happening. They knew what was happening. What they will have know, known is that he was being anointed to work, to go and study in the school of prophets under Samuel, which was a huge um, honour anyway to go and do that. Josephus again says that Samuel whispered in um, David's ear and told him. We don't know whether that's true or not, but it's an interesting thought. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit equipped David to the job that Daniel, that he was being called to. And he came powerfully. The Holy Spirit came upon him powerfully, not gently, but powerfully upon him. And as Andrew says, we leak. It does say that from that day, the, from that day, the Spirit came. It wasn't a once occurrence, but it was from that day. And then I like that last sentence. There's no drama. It just says Samuel went on his way. There was no big celebration or anything. So why David? Why did God pick this young, insignificant man? Or boy, really. He was considered acceptable by God when the other brothers weren't. Why that? As God looks at the heart, it must be something to do with his heart. And if we go back to 1314, God describes the one he picks as a man after his own heart. So David's heart was in line with God's heart. His reason, his emotions and will were aligned with God. Therefore, I have three questions for us this morning. How are our hearts? Are they in line with God? And if they are in line with God, are we seeing as God sees? And then how are we acting? Are we acting as we should do? Because we can all present a persona to people. 
We can present that clean outside of the cup, can't we? But inside, we might be as rotten as they come. I hope not. Our heart being our inward and moral life. Are they in line with God? And because if they're not, as we know, from our heart comes our actions, comes our words. Jesus tells us that both in Mark and in Luke. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Is our heart in line with God? And are we seeing as God sees then? Are we looking at them from how the world looks at people, or are we looking at people as God sees them? Do we need to ask the Holy Spirit to see people as he sees them? Remember, of course, that he loves everybody, however much we disagree with them and dislike them. He loves them as much as he loves us. So are we seeing people as God sees them? And then, are we then acting the way God should act? Are we acting in line with God's will? Our actions, are they in line with him? If you remember how Jesus treated the adulterous woman, he treated her with love and kindness. If you go on, I think two more, Tris. There we go. Remember that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us, all of us. And that's how we should be treating others. Love people as much as God has loved you. So my question this morning is, how is your heart? Is it in line with God's will? Are we seeing the world as God sees it? Are we seeing one another as God sees people? And finally, are we acting as God is acting? Let us pray. And you might recognise this prayer from the beginning of the service, and Dozie and I didn't collaborate over this but I'm not going to sing. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take away your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Amen. And because this is less than your normal time, we're going to move on to do a time of reflection. For to you ask God those two things, three things. How is your heart? How are you seeing? And how are you acting? And the chorus of this, if you go onto the last slide, Tris, I thought the last slide was, and again, and again, perfect. (laughs) And I thought, if we are acting as God would want us to do, then are we doing this? If we are the body... Why aren't his arms reaching? Why aren't his hands healing? Why aren't his words teaching? And if we are the body, why aren't his feet going? Why is his love not showing there is a way? There is a way. Jesus is the way. And we know Dozy was out telling people that yesterday morning. Are we going out and being the body of Christ?